I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Robert Mechanic, a Senior Fellow at the Heller School of Social Policy and Management at Brandeis University. Professor Mechanic has co-authored a perspective article on the lessons learned by institutions that are preparing to participate in the Medicare Bundled Payment for Care Improvement Program. Professor Mechanic, you focus in your article on the hospitals that have applied to participate in the bundled payment model that covers the hospitalization as well as the post-acute care services for 90 days after discharge, which is a big change for most hospitals. What are the key steps to becoming the type of organization that can take financial responsibility for Medicare beneficiaries across that whole continuum of services? Well, Stephen, you know, I think the first issue is simply a shift in mindset or a shift in culture. So institutions that were previously, they provided hospital services, they do it very well, uh, and when the patient is discharged, they're discharged and they're off into the community or off into other facilities. And uh, the shift in mindset really needs to go towards taking responsibility for the whole patient. So now after you serve them in the hospital, uh, there's a, an imperative to engage the patient and coordinate transitions of care. So before hospitals... Uh, historically, they've done discharge planning. They give patients a list, and out they go. And I think going forward, they need to take a more active role in making sure that patients are recovering well and having an ability to intervene or lend a hand quickly when problems arise or make sure that that there is somebody there to do it. Um, A second thing that institutions have to do is they have to do a better job of collaborating with organizations and professionals, physicians outside of their own four walls. So, for example, uh, one of the things that's very important in reducing readmissions that patients who are discharged see their primary care physician, I think the general consensus is within seven days of discharge. But as you know, in Medicare generally, it's been widely reported that only half of the patients who are readmitted after 30 days have seen their primary care physician. And so I think hospitals have to start to make connections with that, with skilled nursing. A third important issue is that they have to be willing and engage in ongoing performance improvement. So that means that they have to become more analytic. They have to be willing to collect data, analyze data, and and make real-time changes in how they are are operating their operating processes and be willing to, you know, be somewhat self-introspective and to make changes uh, when things are not going the way they should be. So what are the hurdles, organizational, financial, cultural, both in hospitals and in the ambulatory care community that need to be overcome to make that shift? Well, you know, obviously the first thing is uh, culture. Um, so, you know, as, as opposed to being a discharge planner, now uh, people have to think more about how can I be a care coordinator? How can I support the patient after they leave? Uh, a second important issue involves information systems. Now, everybody's running around and they're trying to set up uh, new medical records and doctor's offices and so forth. But information systems in hospitals, they don't easily share information with primary care physician offices. Uh, and certainly not with skilled nursing facilities. There, there's not very, very good, in, unless these organizations are part of a health system and people have shared records, and in which case information flows very well. But as you know, in the majority of uh, the country, um, if you have independent physicians and independent healthcare facilities, we are on mail and telephone and fax. And as you know, things fall through the cracks all the time. So hospitals that are really going to focus on this want to think about how to set up good 
mechanisms for transferring information between the key actors out in the community, uh, particularly the primary care physicians and uh, home health, skilled nursing. Secondly, you know, when you get out there today in the post-acute care world, I've heard it called a system of silos. Um, and it truly is. Patients get lost. Um, and they fall through the cracks. There isn't good communication between acute care and post-acute care and a patient's personal physician. And I think that that needs to uh, improve. And, you know, a third thing I mentioned before that that it's important for patients to, to, after their discharge, to have a chance to see their primary care practitioner. And, you know, physicians like to make sure their schedules are booked, and many of them, especially in small practices, are not used to bringing in people on short notice. And, and the physician may, in fact, be willing to, but their office staff looks at the schedule and says, no, we're, we're booked for three weeks. And so I think, uh, and hospitals find, I think, have a very variable experience in being able to get people into their physician offices quickly. On the other hand, hospitals also have to, as opposed to the discharge planner saying, here, take this, this is your instructions, by the way, make an appointment with your physicians. Hospitals have to be more active. I think they have to, in some cases, make those appointments, make sure that the patients get to those appointments, and make sure the connections are made. So, you know, we really need to make sure that uh, there are community-based receptor sites for discharge patients, but we also need, I think, more active engagement on the hospital side to make those things happen. On the financial side, you worked with hospitals to help them analyze their Medicare claims data in order to develop definitions of episodes of care and determine what the prices for those episodes have been historically. What were the most surprising things you discovered in that process? Well, I guess these things shouldn't have been all that surprising, but the first thing that surprised us, us was the magnitude of spending in the 30 or 90 days after patients leave the hospital. So we're always taught to think, well, the hospital is the most expensive place to be in the healthcare system, and uh, the hospital DRG, it's a big chunk of money. But for these bundles, you would frequently see in the first 30 or the first 90 days after discharge, the the post-discharge cost could be 100% of the hospital stay or even 200%. So, for example, for patients who are admitted for uh, congestive heart failure, on average, their next 90 days after they leave, they leave the hospital is twice what it costs during the hospital stay. So very, very large cost. If you're looking at it through the, the lens of a payer of CMS, then you really want to try to do something about that. And again, hospitals previously, they had no idea because they never had the data. They don't, they don't get those claims data. They're the the SNF payment is one system, the home health payment is one system, the hospital payment is home health system. And it's only through a program like this where the data actually gets integrated and we begin to get a whole picture of what's happening to the patient. And then we see this great magnitude of post-acute care spending. A second thing that we found is that there is significant variation in spending per episode, even within individual institutions. So particularly on the post-acute care side, now the, we're looking from the perspective of CMS, so we can't actually tell you what the cost of the hospitalization is, but we can tell you what Medicare paid for the hospitalization. So the variation in the hospitalization tends to have to do, because everybody's paid on the DRG, and that's fairly uniform uh, across hospitals once you make some adjustments, 
where the variation on the inpatient side tends to be is the number of professional services, number of consultations, and so forth. So across patients, there's not that much variation on the index stay. But when you look on the post-acute care side, some patients have zero post-acute care in the next 90 days, and some patients will have multiple readmissions and long skilled nursing stays or rehabilitation hospital stays or even stays in long-term care hospitals. And they can have literally uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in cost. So there's great variation. And if you look at it again, there's a, there is a tail. So the truism that 10% of the patients account for 70 or 80% of the cost, this is really true. You have some very, very expensive patients. You have a lot of relatively inexpensive patients, and then you have a group in the middle. And then finally, you know, there's this variation across patients, but there is also significant variation in average post-acute care spending across institutions. And so we might see, for example, for uh, total joint replacement, variation from the hospitals in the bottom tier to the hospitals really on, on the top tier of spending of 100%. And, you know, generally that's driven by both readmission and, and skilled nursing. A uh, similar thing for congestive heart failure, as we talked about in, in the paper. So great variation across institutions, across individual patients. Um, and, and But in that variation, I think, lies opportunity for uh, improvement. Are there general lessons about how to design an episode of care, what should be included, what should be left out, that you can summarize? Yeah, I think, you know, there are big divides in people's philosophy about this. I think, uh, obviously, from the payer perspective, you'd like to have as much in the bundle as you can. But from the perspective of a clinician, I think clinicians are willing to take some financial risk, but they also want to feel that they have control over the case and control over the outcome. So I think it's very important to have credibility in this, that the services that you include in the bundle can be plausibly related to the index condition. So, for example, if you have a patient who's admitted for a hip replacement, they're discharged from the hospital, and then 60 days later they're, they're uh, back in the hospital, but this time it's for breast cancer surgery. The, the cost of the second admission, there's, there's no way that that should be part of the original bundle because the people who did the orthopedics work don't have anything to do or any control over the uh, oncology care. So things that are, that are not plausibly related should not be included in the bundle. Now, for the same example, if the patient's readmitted at 60 days for an infection of the operative hip or they need a revision or something along those lines, then clearly that ought to be part of the original bundle. But I think you'll find that there, there are clearly differences of opinion um, from the perspective of payers or particularly CMS as opposed to the perspective of clinicians when they look at the data and say, what do we have control over and what, what don't we? And so it's, a, it's really a balancing game. What did the hospitals learn about the current costs of hospitalization or post-acute care that they believe they can address to reduce overall episode costs in the future? So I think the two areas with the biggest opportunity are avoidable readmissions and spending on post-acute care facilities. And the greatest cost there are skilled nursing facilities because that's obviously the, um, the post-acute care site of, of highest level of utilization after a, a discharge. So for congestive heart failure, I'll use that in total joint as examples. Congestive heart failure, 
most of the hospitals we look at have readmission rates between, say, 25% and 40%. Now, that seems awfully high um, to say 25% is on the low end, but in fact, it is on the low end. And when you look at those hospitals that have readmissions in the 40%, oftentimes we'll also see that, you know, not only will 40% of the cases be readmitted, but many of those cases will actually have multiple readmissions. And when you talk to people who go out in the community and see these patients, a lot of times the root causes are are simple things that should be easy to address. So, for example, you know, the patient isn't taking their medication because they can't afford it. But when the patient was in the hospital, nobody asked the patient, can you afford to fill your medication? So they leave with a medication, but when it's done, they don't go back and, and refill it. And so that's why it's so important, I think, for patients at higher risk to have a connection with them after they leave the hospital through some kind of a care coordinator, a community worker, but somebody who can, you know, make sure all the simple things that they're supposed to do in their plan of care that that are actually happening and there's not a a social um, uh, or other reason that, financial reason that these things aren't happening. Uh, Another thing that one can do about readmissions is uh, work with skilled nursing facilities. So in some cases, there are, you know, people who are, uh, have multiple readmissions. They often bounce back and forth between skilled nursing. And if hospitals can develop uh, close collaborative relationships with those institutions, educate them about things that may commonly go wrong, and then rather than calling 911 when a patient puts on, with congestive heart failure, puts on weight rapidly, they, they call an on-call nurse practitioner or physician uh, the hospital, you know, has somebody available, speed them out there. Uh, I'm I'm not a physician, so I may use the, <laughs> the names wrong, but, you know, apply a higher dose of Lasix and see if they can deal with the issue right there as opposed to sending them to the ED and, and admitting them. Um, on, the, on the skilled nursing care side, um, typically you'll see for something like total joint replacement, 30 or 35% of patients are admitted to a skilled nursing facility. But you'll see some hospitals that discharge 70, 80, even 90% of their patients to skilled nursing after total joint replacement. Now, sometimes there, there's, a, there's a good reason for that, right? The hospital owns the skilled nursing facility, and so that's an internal referral pattern that's been worked up for, for financial reasons. But actually, in many cases, there are a number of cases we've seen, and you see a number that Heinz they must own it, and they don't. That's just the referral pattern. So one opportunity is to make more effective use of home health care services when it's appropriate to try and reduce the use of, of skilled nursing. Again, it, you know, it depends on people's home situation and so forth, but when appropriate, it's much less expensive to use home health. And then, you know, again, uh, we can see in this data there's, there's also some variation in the average cost of different nursing facilities across the market, and so hospitals um, can save money by setting up programs with, with uh, preferred providers that a, will work with them to try and coordinate care, and B, may be lower, lower spending anyways. Although I, I will point out, and hospitals are concerned about this, me- Medicare patients do have freedom of choice. So you can't force people to go to a certain SNF, but uh, you can say, look, we have a working program, and we think this is a good facility, and, and we can coordinate your care better if you go here. You point out in your article that one problem with the Medicare bundled payment program is that in a hospital with a relatively low volume of a particular type of episode, random variation from year to year in the severity of illness can have a big effect 
on cost and therefore on whether the hospital is going to lose or save money. Has that been scaring hospitals away from the program? Yeah, I think hospitals are, are rightly concerned because for many of even the high-volume episodes, uh, a medium-sized hospital could have 100 or 150 cases, and there could be fairly significant uh, year-to-year variation because the severity of illness changes from year to year. Now, there are actually two problems. One is random variation, but a second issue occurs because the structure of this program is to set the target price based on historical costs. Now, if there are three or four years between the data that you use to set historical costs and the data and the time that you are on the hook for performance, uh, things can change in the delivery system that, uh, that, that affect your costs. So I'll give uh, one example for uh, angioplasty. Uh, we had several hospitals that say, well, in 2008, we did all of our angioplasties on an inpatient basis, but now we're starting to do more and more of that on an ambulatory basis. And therefore, the patients that we still admit for angioplasty tend to be sicker. So unless you have a mechanism to adjust for that, a risk adjustment mechanism between your base year and your performance year, there can be changes in, in case mix um, that could, dis- they could advantage or disadvantage, but I think primarily disadvantage a hospital. The second issue is this question of random variation, and so I think there's a few things you can do. One is uh, what we would think of as stop loss, and so you, uh, you look at the distribution of episode costs across a wide range, and then you say at some point, let's say the 90th percentile or the 95th percentile, you would cap the cost that would go against a provider's bundled budget. So if you happen to get three super sick $100,000 uh, cases in a year, and the 90th percentile was $50,000, your budget would only be charged $50,000 for those cases. And from from the perspective of CMS, they would pay for that directly, but then they would take the costs of those high-cost cases, they would take it out of the budget. So in the end, CMS would spend the same amount of money, but it would protect hospitals from changes from base year to performance year in very high-cost cases. And CMS has actually proposed a stop loss at the 95% threshold. Um, Another thing that you could do that would reduce the risk, if if you recall, this program is there's a budget, you look at actual performance, and if the hospital saves money, they get a check. If they uh, spend more money than their budget, they have to pay back CMS, and it's 100% risk. Another way to reduce the risk of random variation would be for hospitals to share gains and losses with CMS. And so that would have effectively cut their, their potential upside, but also their potential downside by 50%. And that would significantly reduce this risk of random variation. You actually mentioned in your article that CMS is beginning to discuss changes to the proposed financial model with applicants. Are the kinds of things you're just talking about some of those possibilities, and are there others? Yeah, so I think they're talking about a a few things. Um, One is, as I mentioned, they are talking about setting a stop-loss threshold at 95%. And I think that people view that as positively, although whether 95% is what you need or whether you need a somewhat lower threshold, I think, is open for debate. CMS has also been proposing what they call a Bayesian estimation, but essentially what it is is a blend. And so setting the target price based on a blend in a regional average, a hospital's region, 
with the hospital-specific costs. And so the larger the hospital is, the more cases there is, the more weight would go to the hospital's own cost as opposed to the regional cost. But there's a fundamental problem in that proposal, and that is the following. The hospitals, when they looked at their data, they would ask the question about, is there a lot of opportunity for me here in the system? And if they already are very, very efficient, then they might look at it and say, well, you know, there's only so much so much more efficiency I can derive out of the system. This bundled payment puts me at risk based on my own historical cost. So I, I would guess that many of those hospitals didn't apply. The other hospitals, they look and they pick bundles and they say, where do I have the biggest opportunity to make improvement? And for those hospitals that made the decision to apply because they saw a big opportunity, their tendency would be that they were higher than their region. So in effect, if they are higher than their region, this blending algorithm effectively asks them to take a larger discount than they have already proposed to the government. And I think hospitals are very, very skeptical of that. And uh, hopefully there will be further discussion because I think that that can be problematic for the applicants. A third issue is risk adjustment. And again, CMS has not been definitive about risk adjustment. Uh, Their initial position was that the um, MSDRG system, which now has varying levels of severity for different DRGs, provides some risk adjustment. I think our position based on our analysis is uh, additional risk adjusters are needed, maybe risk adjustment along the lines of what they use for Medicare Advantage, um, especially for the secular trends that we talked about, the changes over time. So I think this is an important discussion, and uh, it has not yet been resolved. One of the four models in the bundled payment program sets a fixed prospective payment for all services during a hospitalization plus readmissions within 30 days. What are the advantages and disadvantages of that approach? Well, the big advantage is cash flow. Uh, You get the money up front uh, for all the services, and, uh, um, and that's, I think, always viewed as a good thing. The major disadvantage is that a hospital or a healthcare system receives a lump sum payment and they have to turn around and pay physicians directly. So they have to have a mechanism and, and essentially they have to either uh, have an insurance mechanism internally or they have to contract for that and pay physicians directly. So it's an additional administrative layer. So generally, I think of systems that are already well integrated that have employed physicians. This is easy if you have employed physicians, but if you have independent physicians, it's a fair amount more work. And so I think that's why many hospitals prefer this retrospective model because they don't have to they don't have to set up contracts or figure out how to pay. Um, they just track their budget over time. These bundled payment programs are at least in part a form of pay for performance. In your view, are they more or less promising in terms of cost and in terms of quality of care than other approaches to pay for performance? Yeah, I've, I think the history of pay for performance has been uh, very, very tepid. And generally what we've seen nationally with the pay for performance systems that have been evaluated is they've, they've included relatively small amounts of money, um, They've a lot of times had lots of different measures which further diffuse this small amount of money, and their impact on cost has been uh, negligible to nothing, and their impact on quality, I think, has been limited. The bundled payment program, I believe, offers 
uh, much stronger financial incentives. And uh, when when you get to the um, the 90-day episodes, it really broadens the hospital's view on quality. Now, um, CMS is asking the applicants to propose a series of quality measures that they would track over time. Uh, I, I think that you know we are going to need over time to develop a set of measures that are more customized, bundled payment quality measures. And at this point, that that process has really been in its infancy. Uh, we've mostly focused on cost. So I think clearly, from the perspective of cost, bundled payment has a potential to be much more effective than pay-for-performance systems we've seen out in the market. From the perspective of quality, I think the jury is out because it's not well enough developed yet. Do you think these bundled payment programs have the potential to bend the cost curve in healthcare? Well, so the bundled payment program, the CMS bundled payment program, by design, will save money for Medicare because hospitals have to provide a guaranteed discount uh, against what CMS would otherwise spend. And so it depends on how the financial model is designed. But I think ultimately the potential for long-term savings depends on whether, um, whether this financial incentive leads hospitals to invest in new process change, and, and it leads to new models for how they deliver care. And particularly important is how they work with and provider systems after they leave the hospital and, uh, and really coordinate the transitions within the community. So I think the, the real potential return on this is not so much the initial discount for, from CMS, but it's the potential that this will, this will start a series of changes inside hospitals that spread over time and lead to a more efficient, more effective uh, system. But only time will tell. Thank you, Professor Mechanic. It's been my pleasure, Steve.